Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, I'm looking at a painting which is looking down on a busy square with crowds of people dressed in late medieval costume. To the left is a tavern hosting a festive parade. To the right is a church with a line of sombre worshippers coming and going. Directly in front is what appears to be a mock battle between a fat man straddling a barrel wearing a large pork pie on his head and he's jouting with a thin, lanky figure sitting on a modest wooden chair. The fat man wheels a long skewer containing pieces of roasted meat. The thin figure holds a long paddle with two small fish on the end of it. This is the scene in the painting The Fight Between Carnival and Lent by the Flemish artist Peter Bruegel the Elder. It was composed in Antwerp in 1559 at the height of the Protestant Reformation, a time and place where questions of religious practice, practice were hotly contested and could be a matter of life and death. Bruegel's a key figure in the development of Northern European painting, but his work is notoriously enigmatic, often raising questions that, uh, that, he, that he seems consistently to refuse to answer. You'll find an image of the fight between Carnival and Lent on our In Our Time website. With me to discuss the painting are Miri Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary, University of London, Jean Nicktaline, Senior Lecturer in the History of Art at the University of York, and Louise Milne, Lecturer in Visual Culture at the University of Edinburgh and Edinburgh Napier University. Miri Rubin, historians disagree about exactly where Peter Bruegel the Elder was born, but somewhere in the Low Countries, in around 1525, can you describe what life was like then? Sure. Um, we can think about this area, which is probably Belgium, Holland and Luxembourg of today, as the provinces of, in his lifetime, the Spanish Netherlands. The Netherlands were, in the 15th century, that is a century before Bruegel, probably the most exciting, creative, rich, important, innovative part of Europe Absolutely. And uh, in, in terms of commerce, in terms of artistic production, uh, leadership in print and uh, leading technologies, very, very rich. Now, through <coughs> dynastic marriages, this area at the death of the Duke of Burgundy in the late 15th century passed to his daughter, who married a Habsburg and a Holy Roman Emperor to be. And so this part of Northwest Europe becomes part of the enormous Holy Roman Empire at that moment, late 15th, early 16th, ruled by the Habsburg dynasty. And so it happens that in the lifetime of Bruegel, uh, the, the Netherlands are ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor, who happens to be a Spaniard, Charles V. Charles V in the 1550s decides to hand over, still in his lifetime, to hand over his, this enormous empire, part to his brother, the Habsburg, part to his son. So when this painting is painted in 1559, the part of the world in which Bruegel operates is under the rule of a Spanish ru ruler, a Spanish king. So this intellectual sorry about this, hotbed, is governed, which is based on cities, powerful cities who have made great strides in their liberties as cities, in their strengths, cultural and political, if we use the word, as strength, governed by uh, Spanish hegemony, which is Catholic uh, and which is rurally based. And these cities have taken on the Reformation. Luther's been nearby. They've taken on the Reformation very strongly, powerfully, intellectually, and in terms of their practices. Now, what effect has that had? 
they've taken on the Reformation in as much as a lot of people, particularly in the north of these provinces, are, are committed uh, Protestants. But it is still nominally a Catholic domain of a Catholic emperor. So... It is tolerated because, as you say, there are traditions of city life, of civic life, of toleration, and there are liberties that allow cities to rule themselves and therefore to tolerate Protestants if they wish to. But the period we are talking about, particularly here, the 1550s, is a period in which uh, Philip II now emperor from, from Madrid, is adamant to really push a very, very strong Catholic agenda. He's afraid that this whole part of his, of his domain will go Protestant. But there's a very powerful Protestant uh, agenda. Martin Luther King has posted those 95 theses in 1517, quite nearby. Mm -hmm. Calvin has broken from the Catholic Church in the early 1530s. These two powerful men have powerful followers, and they are around this area more vividly and more intellectually effectively than anywhere else in, in the Habsburg Empire. So it has to take that on. Jean Nocturne, historians of art talk about the Northern Renaissance at this time. What was it? Well, that's a very uh, difficult and uh, challenging question. Um, the term Renaissance really relates to Italian art, the concept of the rebirth, which is what Renaissance means. Um, and it's a concept that Italian writers and theorists uh, began to put forward actually as early as the 14th century, particularly in the 15th century and onwards that they were looking back to the great ideas of antiquity and reviving them. And so when you look at Italian art of the 15th and 16th century, you see a great interest in motifs that come from Roman art, um, which are being revived, rethought about. So, for instance, interest in the nude human body and its musculature. Now, in Northern Europe... In the 15th century, certainly, there is absolutely no interest in antiquity whatsoever. And yet the no term... No nude bodies either, as a matter of interest. No. There are some nude bodies, but not of the kind of classical style. No, 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 not those style. sort of nude bodies. No. <laughs> no. Um, but it's interesting that we still use the term Renaissance for the 15th century because there is a sense of a renewed interest in a new kind of art, particularly within painting, an interest in... Um, exploring the techniques of painting in order to represent things realistically and naturalistically. And so that's seen as a kind of new step, and so we use the term Renaissance. Yeah, it's a misnomer, really, because they're doing something quite different. Yes. Uh, and printmaking comes into it quite strongly uh, mm -hmm. in the terms of uh, the democratization of it, one might say, to a slightly misusing way, but spreading of the work, spreading of the, spreading of the picture. Can you talk about how that played in? Yes, absolutely. So printmaking really develops most strongly in Northern Europe, in Germany in particular, and in, in the Low Countries. Um, and one of the important things about printmaking is that it's relatively cheap. Um, prints can be circulated quite widely. And so it's a means by which artistic ideas can be uh, circulated and uh, disseminated much more easily than other kinds of media that are larger and more expensive. Um, now, one thing I wanted to come back to this issue about the Renaissance because things start to change in the 16th century. So in the 15th century, as I said, there was no interest in, in the classical antiquity. That really started to change around 1500. And Albert Dürer, the great German painter, was the first northern artist printmaker um, as well who went to Italy and perceived Italian artistic culture as something to be emulated and something to be taken on board. And then you start to see Netherlandish artists also traveling to Italy and taking on the ideas um, of Italy. 
we're moving to uh, Bruegel now. He was apprenticed to a husband and wife and uh, thought of in those days as artisan and worker. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that he most of his painting is about artisans and workers. You've mentioned printing. Printing mm-hmm. is developing rapidly and pe- artists are being able to make a living from printing. They couldn't before. People are starting to buy these sort of paintings. So there's a commercial private market, as distinct from the popes and princes and that sort of thing. And there's the influence of Bosch, which is a powerful influence in that part of the world. Can you roll those all together, please? And tell us uh, how those affected Bruegel. Yes, absolutely. So the striking thing about Bruegel is, as I mentioned, in the 16th century, you're starting to see this revival of interest in, or actually a new interest, I should say, in the art of Italy and in the art um, of the classical world. Bruegel seems to deliberately disavow those kinds of interests. Um, We don't actually know for certain that he um, was trained by Peter Cook van Elst, but we're told that by a later biographer. Um, And what we see within his art is rather than an interest in Italianate ideas or classical ideas, he's really looking towards native ideas. He's interested in native subjects, Netherlandish people and their customs, and he's very interested in the art of Hieronymus Bosch. So Bosch was a very important, very, very idiosyncratic painter um, who was working in the late 15th, early 16th century and developed a very distinct style that uh, remained popular for decades after his death. And one of the first things that Bruegel does in his work, he begins with landscapes, or the very first works that he does, um, and then he very quickly turns towards um, a Boschian mode, and it's in prints initially that he's working um, in these media. And Bosch is a powerful influence among all those painters because it's the, the, the striking originality and the, the demonization, the mixture of surrealism and realism and the crowdedness of the canvas. And again and again, you see things that Bruegel and others are picking up. Yes, absolutely. So, so Bosch, um, he's really known for his depictions of fantastical scenes, particularly images of um, last judgment scenes, hell scenes, the temptation of St. Anthony, where you have lots of demons and hybrid creatures and strange things happening. Now, the Romanist painters um, in the Netherlands, so these are the artists who are interested in Italianate work, they do not have any appreciation um, for that type of stuff. And Bruegel, as it were, imitates it, does a direct but imitation Bruegel, with the fish each fishing and so Bruegel on. Bruegel absolutely does. Louise yes. Milne, he spent most of, Bruegel spent most of his career in Antwerp. Can you give us some idea of the intellectual climate of that city at that time? Yes. Antwerp, according to a, a great economic historian, was the greatest trading centre the world has ever seen because never before or since has all of world trade been concentrated in one place to this degree. So it's like 20th century New York and 19th century Paris rolled into one. The One key thing, we've mentioned printing. That means printing in terms of books and printing in terms of pictures. And it, it really is the European centre for that. Bruegel works for Hieronymus Koch, who's also a member of the Guild of St. Luke, the Guild of Painters, but it's much, much bigger thing than just painters. The Guild of St. Luke covers a huge range of things, including map makers, um, button painters, saddle decorators, enormous uh, list of trades. So Hieronymus Koch becomes effectively the biggest, most important printer, publisher of of images in Europe. And Bruegel is right there at the heart of this thing. So I think that when we're thinking about its intellectual 
climate, the city is a place where map making is going on. Uh, very soon, Bruegel's friend Abraham Ortelius is going to publish the first ever world atlas, uh, which he worked on obviously for years and published just after Bruegel died. Uh, he, the atlas comes out in 1570. Hieronymus Koch publishes these maps, which actually look a bit like Bruegel. If, if, if we look at the picture of Carnival and Lent, it has a tilted perspective. And Koch published maps which are not simply completely flat aerial maps of the kind that we're used to. They have a sort of panoramic tilt, just like this painting. Yeah, but just to stay over the humanism, I mean, it's interesting that Tyndall was over there yes. uh, in Antwerp, able to work in the translation of the Bible into English the first. Well, of course, uh, Wycliffe had authorised one first, but this is the defining one. Uh, in Antwerp, hiding in Antwerp, being hidden in Antwerp, and the intellectual activity around him and those like him was again intense. It worked on many, many levels. Like yes. often when a city takes over a culture, it takes over everything, doesn't it? Yes. And Planton, Christopher Planton, is working on the Polyglot Bible, yeah. which uh, the, the party that we would think of really as the moderates in Europe, the Irenesis party, the ones that wanted some kind of rapprochement between the Catholics and Protestants, felt that a huge project like the Polyglot Bible, the Bible in many languages, would, would heal these breaches. Can you uh, give us some idea how the fizz of ideas in Antwerp at the time is reflected, if it is reflected, in Bruegel's work? Well... Bruegel is unique. It's possible to see that he has things in common with uh, other artists working in the Guild of St. Luke, the people who, as Jean said, are now making classicising allegories and Italian-looking things. However, his work really does have a, a, a quite different uh, sort of visual style. He, but it is full of ideas. A, his friend Artelius gives a, uh, an epitaph about Bruegel. The geographer, the man who published the, the first geographer, yes. Not the first, but an early artist. Uh, yeah. and, and he says that Bruegel painted many things that cannot be painted. Yes, and uh, what we see on this painting and in lots of his paintings is that they're encyclopedic. He crams in as many people as he can. He does the Netherlandish proverbs and everybody who's is being a proverb. There's a man beating his head against the wall. Uh, he, uh, he does children's games and every child on this massive painting is playing a different game. And there's the crowding and the massivity here as well, Mary Rubin, in the fight between Carnival and Lent. Uh, it brings this... Can you talk about um, what Carnival and Lent meant to people at that time before we step into the painting? Absolutely. Um, well, clearly there were practices that distinguished the period leading up to Easter from, we are told very early on, from the days of the apostles themselves. They wanted to find a way of sort of marking this remarkable event of the resurrection of Christ. So how do you prepare? So one way of doing it is by taking 40 days, as it were, of fasting like Christ did the 40 days that he went into the wilderness. And then there's the question of how you count the 40 <coughs> days. You're not allowed to fast 
or, or, or have, you know, give yourself a hard time on Sunday. So it has to be some extra days. So there are all sorts of calendrical adjustments that happen over the centuries. But basically, the idea is that the weeks that lead up to the miracle of Easter, which is the great news of the Christian story, have to be marked out by appropriate uh, preparation. By medieval times, and definitely prevailing in the 16th century amongst Catholics, is that also Easter is the time of annual communion, the annual taking of the Eucharist, which has to be prefaced by proper penance and preparation. So this is a long period of the year in the winter into the spring of uh, fasting, abstinence from sex in certain ways, and generally a different style, a different rhythm of life. And carnival means absence from meat, doesn't it? I read in the notes. Well, carne, absolutely. Carne, right, right yes. but why is it a fight? Well, a fight between carnival On and Ash Red. Wednesday, all these deprivations begin, OK? Yeah. So why and is for it a 40 fight? and some days, yeah. what's before... Carnival marks the last day, Mardi Gras, right? Fat Tuesday, as it were. The last Tuesday on which you can eat well, eat fat, eat meat. And it's a way of marking the end of that part of the year. So it is a fight, as it were, between the days of just being human with all your failings of the way that you are to the 40-some days of being an aware, enhancedly Christian self reflecting person that are about to begin. Let's go into the painting, uh, Jean. Uh, could you describe it in more detail? For those who haven't got uh, the painting <laughs> on the website, this, uh, it is it is extraordinarily crowded. Um, it's in the village... Oh, you, you described it. Actually. <laughs> what am I doing it for? You did. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing to say about this is it's a relatively large painting, so it's about 100... 18, I think, centimetres tall and 165 wide, something like that. So it's large and it's got lots and lots of human figures in it. And one of the crucial things to um, recognise that's significant is that the proportion, the size of the human figure in relation to the overall picture space is very small. So you can crowd in lots and lots of detail. And this is something distinctive, I think, to um, this group of paintings that Bruegel's um, doing at this time. So um, as you described at the beginning, um, we're looking onto what seems to be a kind of town square, maybe a sort of, um, not not quite a village, but um, perhaps a small town of some kind, a, a somewhat urban setting. We're looking into the central market, um, and there are lots of groups of figures doing lots of different kinds of things. And at the foreground, um, kind of at the lower part of the painting, um, is this battle taking place, this mock um, tournament, as it were, between these figures dressed up um, to, to um, embody Carnival and Lent. And then there are groups of followers behind them. Um, and when you start to look into the details of the paintings, and I would recommend that if, if people, you know, maybe after the program get a chance to look into, into really to kind of look into the details, you see, for instance, that um, behind uh, uh, Lent, for instance, there are figures who are carrying pretzels and bread, various um, motifs that um, relate to the... Uh, the uh, what you can eat in Lent. Exactly, what because you can eat in no Lent. You see in. lots yes. of um, fish um, also on that side. On the other side, um, you see lots of waffles um, uh, and uh, pancakes. Sausages. Um, 
Yes, lots of sausages, lots of meat and so on. What you also see is that the figures behind Carnival are dressed up. So they're, um, they've got kind of fancy costume on. A lot of them have masks um, or their faces are covered in veils. So there's a sense in which they're taking on um, a persona, um, a sort of maybe stepping outside themselves a little bit, whereas the figures who are behind Lent um, are dressed more in their ordinary... But there um, are nearly 200 people, characters, yes. in, this, in this painting. I mean, if there's a documentary feeling about it, and, and the people are watching a play, uh, what's it called? The, 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 the Dirty, the dirty bride. bride. The Dirty Bride. Thank you very yes. much. The Dirty Bride. I just slipped my memory of that. The Dirty Bride. And people are coming out of church and, and on and on it goes. Um, can you, uh, Louise, can you tell us this? If you look at that first time, there's a lot of people in the square. Isn't it interesting they're doing that at that time? Oh, that's what they were like at that time. Can you tell us what a, what a, a viewer then, not many people would see it, come to think about it. Anyway, would think was happening in religious terms? Well, I think that it does look like a, a, a documentary an ethnographic sort of study, and Bruegel, as we said, is extremely interested in ethnographic matters. But the big clue, I think, comes from the trees at the very top. If you look at the left and at the right, the top strip of the picture, you'll see that the trees at the left are a bare and the trees at the right have little buds on them. This tells you that different kinds of time are present in the picture. So, in fact, the picture is really like a huge clock, of the seasons. It starts at the top with Epiphany, it moves down through Candlemas. These are carnivalist practices that were conducted at different times of year, leading into the clash between Carnival and Lent. Have we completely lost this way, most of us, uh, lost this way of, of reading, sorry, a painting? Would it have been very obvious to you like that, that this, what you have said is what's going on? I think that one way in which Bruegel is like his his time is that he has this mannerist thing where clues to the the wider meaning of the work are so to speak hidden or not completely obvious and some major aspects uh, which tell you which unlock the picture for you are in the, in the background or hidden in a crowd or something of that kind. So I think that you would look at this, they would see, OK, so this must be a carnival play and there were plays where people dressed up as a personification of winter and the personification of summer and jousted each other, a sort of simple kind of carnival play. And this one, you see that carnival is on, his barrel is on a sledge and this is how... Carnival floats were mounted in the Netherlands, uh, upsledden on on sleighs, and then they were pooled, right? And similarly, the peop- the the monk and the nun pooling Lady Lent. Lady Lent is on a sort of little cart. So it looks like it takes the form of an actual carnival tournament, a mock fight. But then you start seeing, wait a minute, what is going on as you follow the streams back, the two arcs leading into Carnival and leading into Lent, you see that different times, different calendar feasts are present. And I certainly think that viewers of the time would, would have clocked that, yeah. Can we talk about, we've talked about the, uh, the, the Carnival, can we talk about the Lenten component, Mary? Absolutely, yes, because um, there is uh, there are quite a lot of clues and indeed the documenting of practices. For example, on the right 
on the Lent side, as it were. We can just peek into this church, this late medieval church, and see, for example, that the images are shrouded, are covered, because decorative elements in the church were indeed covered during the period of Lent. We see this enhanced activity of almsgiving and beggars being very active because people during Lent are much more attuned to doing good works in order to enact their penance. We even see uh, in the the background a lady cleaning uh, her uh, windows from the outside and the Dutch are famous for being very careful about the the cleanliness of their houses and so on, as Simon Sharma has so beautifully shown for a later period. But it captures here that sort of spring cleaning, that cleaning both within the person and within the household. So I think, you know, it's extremely recognisable. And the combination is about, you know, the period, the periods that one single person, as well as a community, will go through those days when we're negligent and the days when we're careful. Jean, the picture... You want to say something? Sorry, did I miss that? Yes. Uh, I just uh, just wanted to add that the other key thing about this is that although it looks documentary, in fact, none of this would have been happening in Antwerp. This is a nostalgic picture about village customs, older customs. Really, it is looking back to a sort of idealised version of the, the, the way things were maybe in Bruegel's grandparents' time. Jean, can you? The picture looks like uh, a chaotic, not a chaotic, but a crowd, a crowd scene, people higgledy piggledy. Now then, mm. what do you? What would you say about the composition of the painting? Can, should we look? If we look harder, do we see a, uh, a something that's diagrammatic, mathematical in the composition? Well, I think with Bruegel, he has this tendency in a lot of his works to depict what looks like just completely chaotic um, crowds of people. And I think when you compare the, um, his style of painting with um, the, the Romanist types of, of, of artists, when you look at their works, you can instantly see what the composition is. With his works, I think actually it's very difficult to break it down and to identify how is it that he has done the balances um, that, that makes it work um, as effectively as a visual um, work. But one thing to point out, for instance, is that Although he's got these um, groups of figures um, kind of dispersed all over the picture space, it's not like they're kind of evenly dispersed. You can easily kind of pick out individual groups and kind of see, oh, that there we see a group of children playing with spinning tops. And there we see a group of uh, figures kind of spinning in a circle. And there we see a procession. And there we can see these theatrical performances. So you can you can easily identify the kind of key groupings um, and kind of pick them out. And he's somehow, I honestly don't actually know how he achieves this, but he manages to make the overall thing an effective, a kind of beautiful, attractive picture. And yet it doesn't have a very obvious sense, you know, of balance or composition. But it has right and left, very It clearly. certainly has a very right, right and, and left. left. Although, and although even there, Mostly. there's not a kind of, absolute you know you you can you can kind of go down the middle but it's not a kind of absolute sense of oh here's just one thing on this side and here's something completely different on the other it does kind of blend in the point of views and i found the point of view quite fascinating because if you're looking you could imagine say you're in a a high seat in a grandstand at a football match looking down things you're high up and you're looking from that high down on the pitch Mm -hmm. like that it's that that's the point of view now that's that's interesting so why did he have that point of view well, he derives it in part from this genre of the world landscape, the Weltlandschaft, which in a way is pioneered... I, I, I can't quite follow that. What does that mean? The world landscape means uh, a picture, or, which is what most people think of when you think of the Northern Renaissance, like Patineer or Jan van Eyck, where everything is in hallucinatory detail and you seem to have the whole world compressed into a frame. 
right? And this is a way really of holding the world in your hands. It's it's about the mercantile attitude about being masters of the planet and having a God's eye view and being able to take in everything at once. So he would say this is a God's eye view? I think that it places the spectator in a very privileged position. You developed the idea earlier on, maybe you could take it a little bit further, that, that this is not a painting of his contemporaries. This is a painting by Bruegel of uh, rather nostalgic, uh, bringing together of from his grandparents' time or whatever. What significance? Why did he do that? I think, as Edward Snow once said, Bruegel viewed his art as a place from which to see the contradictions of his own time. So... It's not quite a plague on both your houses, but it's a profoundly reconciliatory kind of view that you need to step outside the frame in order to see that the the quarrel, so to speak, between Carnival and Lent is balanced, is part of, is part of a wider picture. I think that by his time, festivals in Antwerp took the form of big, organised municipal processions. They were not homemade. Here in Carnival's train, you see people wearing homemade costumes. There's a guy with a cushion up his front to look fat. There's another woman wearing a necklace of eggs. This is a sort of homemade, spontaneous sort of thing that you would make in villages, like people dressing up for Halloween. You don't, you don't commission fantastically elaborate costumes. But at this date in Antwerp, carnival processions on Gangen were really orchestrated. They were big. They were made by professionals. You commented on the on, on the difficulty of finding a compositional key to it, except there's a right and a left, as Mary pointed out, and there's a big square in the middle and so on. One aspect of it that strikes me is that, he, except for the, the carnival on the beer barrel and, and uh, Lent in their chair being pulled on the trolley. Uh, there's an, a, a, a total egalitarianism about it. Every single person in that painting gets the same attention and measure. Now, that's an idea, isn't it? It's not just the way he paints. So what's going on there? Jean, do you want to say something? First? Yeah, it's, it's very um, significant, actually, that you don't see a lot of um, what we might call elites um, in this painting. I think we see... Some burgers at the, yeah, at the top. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, and especially there's one, for instance, one man who's wearing a fur-lined um, yeah, coat. Yeah, he doesn't and get he's any more space. Arms, but he doesn't give any more space. Beggar, and most of the people that we can see, just judging by their dress, they're ordinary people. They're working people. And you get the sense that Bruegel is really interested in the full panoply of social life, different kinds of people. How do they dress? How do they act? How do they behave? And one of the things that he's so brilliant at is just in the stance of each figure, you can almost just immediately read something off about the way that they are. But you don't just do that. No, Why did he arrive do at doing you that? Don't what, just what was do that. His, that comes out of an idea it or does. ideas. Now, what's going on there? Well, I think it's, it's remarkable that this is a painter who, as opposed to, say, the great Van Eyck a hundred years earlier, has never been in a courtly context, has never been in a place where he has to do the portraits of great people. Indeed, he never painted a portrait of great people. This is art that is consumed in cities and perhaps in how great cities see 
the bumpkins and the simpler folk of smaller towns and villages. That may be the vantage point. It's still an idea, though, isn't it? We're told that when he went to Italy, instead of painting the Colosseum, he put his back to the Colosseum yeah. and painted yeah. what he saw in there. Yeah. So he's, he's making, he's making yeah. a statement. Yeah. It isn't that he couldn't have been a court painter. He could have been a court painter. He could have gone to a court. He could have stayed in Italy and found a court. He was a very good painter. But he chose not to. He chose to do this sort of thing. And I'm intrigued as to... If I think it, it is, is any the, more civic, the, the civic culture... It is this more egalitarian form of government. It is also commerce and interlocking of interests that mean that people have to be valued for what they bring rather than their 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 birth or necessarily inherited wealth. I think it's crucial. Sorry, I think it's crucial that he started as a printmaker. And printmaking is a very democratic sort of thing. It was initially outside the control of the guilds. It's it's the first information age. He really has this fascination with the collection of data, which is to do with a whole stream of activity in his generation. It, this picture is often thought of as one of his Teatro Mundi works, the theatre of the world. So the, all of the world collected in an encyclopedia, a book, a painting. He's also, the prince introduces artists, artisan artists, which he thought of himself, to the world of bestseller. On the way back from Italy, he painted views of the Alps and then he did, made notes of them. He did them as prints when he came. And these were massive bestsellers and were yes. one of the sources of his later wealth, such as it was. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with what Amiria said about the... Uh, Yes, absolutely. But I, I also think a really crucial thing to, to recognize is that um, the genre of peasant painting or peasant imagery was very popular at this time. Um, and this particular painting, it's not exactly peasant imagery or um, not in quite the same genre, but I think it's related to that same sense of an interest very often on the part of townspeople in the lives of people in the countryside. Um, and this is something that Bruegel uh, depicts very frequently within his works. Um, and there's a lot of been a lot of debate in the past in the, in the literature about what this means. Is is this interest in peasant culture about criticizing um, the, the lower classes who, yes, who beha- behave in these very, um, you know, vulgar ways and don't have the graces um, of the upper classes? Um, or other people actually look at the same works and think, um, actually, Bruegel is really depicting a very positive view of, a, a, of an egalitarian society where people work together and um, support each other. Um, so it's very intriguing that the exact same paintings can often be interpreted by scholars in pretty much opposite ways. But what's really striking is, although he's so interested in the local and in the Netherlandish, the Netherlandish proverbs that you already mentioned, he is not a provincial artist. He went to Italy, right. he knows what he's doing, he's so extremely sophisticated, and we see it particularly also in series of prints and so on, but he chooses to do this. This is interesting to him. This is relevant to the world around him, and the merchants who like like this art. They like this sort of art, which is about their own domain, their own part of the world. Bosch was mentioned at the beginning of mm. this uh, conversation. Is he, is he figuring? Is he figuring in this painting? Is, he, is the shadow of Bosch there? I think, yes, Bosch made some uh, design which is called the Carnival Lent, which sadly we don't have, and we've got some bad and cut-down copies of it, and that is a considerably more fantastical. It contains some of Bosch's trademark imagery of the hybrids and the monsters and so on. And the notion would be then that carnival is a time for the release of normally suppressed desires. It's a time when you can 
uh, do the reverse of what you would normally do. It's it, desire in his mask goes through the city streets, as the poet Mantuan is. What I think is interesting about this is that if you look at it in the context of the other things that Bruegel is doing at the time, this is not a very fantastical or extreme picture. It's not about the unleashing of desire. Everything is very controlled. There, it, it, it too, it's too controlled. <laughs> it's, it's as if he is making an argument for the innocence of carnival. Whereas in other works, he uses carnivalesque imagery to depict sin and, and more monstrous states of mind. One of the things that strikes you about the painting is that, uh, that very striking title, The Fight Between, but most people aren't interested in it. I mean, it, in the foreground, you've got the man on the barrel, the woman on the trolley, <laughs> and w- with a few followers. Most people just getting on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have their backs to it. Uh, and so what do you make of that? Well, there's also a lot of... Um I think, debate about to what extent are these two sides being um, seen as oppositional to each other? Or actually, is it just a depiction of the different cycles that that people go through? So there are some scholars who look at this work and say, well, actually, both sides are being very much satirized. So we're looking at the indulgence of people in carnival and the way that they misbehave. So, you know, a a man vomiting out the window and, and so on. Um, But then on the other side, people say, well, then you see the hypocrisy of of religion. And yet, when you look at the details, it's not really that clear that there is so that great of a critique um, going on in this image. And indeed, of course, um, uh, Luther, although he abolished many, many uh, practices that were not grounded in scripture... He actually thought Lent was a good thing, although it's not in scripture, the whole Lent cycle, because he thought it concentrates the mind, uh, it makes people reflect, and, and it makes them think, of course, of Christ's resurrection. What in, I, th- I think that the, the other thing to remember here is that the Reformation is not just about theological dogma. There is also a cultural reformation which is shared in by both Catholics and Protestants, and it's about cleaning up popular culture. It's about making sure that people don't go vomiting in the streets and dressing up in masks and dancing and so on. So there's this anti-carnival movement. Carnival is banned continually, obviously unsuccessfully, or they wouldn't have to keep on banning it. So against against it on both sides. And the Calvinists are just as anti-carnival as anyone else. And this is about the coming in of a sort of civil society, which is like our own society, where people are supposed to police themselves and internalise proper rules of behaviour. It's moving towards the most extreme goal of this, really, is the Puritan culture of the following century, right? But the beginning of Puritanism is is at this time, in the anti-carnival movement. So to present an innocent carnival of, of people obviously having harmless family fun is quite a strong political statement at this time. How can we turn to the legacy uh, with the three of you, please? Let's start with Mary. Uh, Bruegel, probably the best possible legacy, two sons who became... (laughs) became, (laughs) became, Not as good as him. (laughs) Still, there we are. Um, What was his legacy? First of all, briefly, how how highly was he thought of in his own day? He died when he was 44. He died with a reputation which was what? It was a good reputation. We know that by the early 17th century when he is described amongst other Netherlandish artists for his accomplishments and so on. So clearly there is a reputation already in his lifetime. He basically defines two genres which come to dominate Western art, landscape and peasant painting or the the painting of, of everyday life. By the time you hit the 19th century, that is what everyone is painting. 
And I think um, during his own lifetime, he was seen very much as the painter of nature because he was seen as very different from the Romanist uh, painters of his time. And that really dominated his reputation for a significant amount of time um, and then seen as, you know, the peasant painter who came from peasants himself, him, uh, supposedly. Um, and I think it's more recently that he's been seen as a very sophisticated painter who's actually very in tune with humanist ideas and, and aiming at a very sophisticated audience. But he disappeared from view sort of thing for quite a few centuries. It's really a massive rediscovery from the late 19th, particularly the 20th century, and some real advocates about his importance, like the whole importance of uh, Netherlandish art. And and in the later 20th century, with all the movements of democratization and the world upside down, and definitely the movements of the 1960s, I mean, when I was a student in the 80s, everybody had posters of Bruegel on their walls. It was something about a gesture towards people, towards the valorizing of working people, and so on. And then, of course, the whole Boschian, Bruegelian sort of fantasy side. I mean, you cannot dissociate that, I think, from film like filmmakers like Buñuel. That's I mean, right. Thinking of Viridiana, thinking Fellini. Of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did he have a direct influence on the generations of painters which followed him in the Netherlands and elsewhere, Gene? Just after his death, he dies, and then what happens to his influence? Well, it's particularly carried on through his older son, um, who actually made an entire career out of copying his father's composition. So, in fact, a lot of Bruegel's works were known by copies by his son, which weren't quite as good as the originals, but but pretty close to them. In fact, we can sometimes find find out things about Bruegel the Elder's works by the ways in which they were copied. Yes, I would say that. It's particularly the way that he transformed landscape that is copied in the 17th century. People really find that useful artists build on it. Down that route we have Claude, Poussin, Turner, Constable, all these kind of guys. And eventually... We neglected to say that one of the things he did was landscapes. I mean, this is encyclopedic painting. It was the landscape, as it were, attached, but it's an encyclopedic yes. painting. The landscapes were one of his strengths as well. That's mm -hmm. right. And... It's a map of human culture, really. These are very much the Teatro Mundi pictures, like our carnival in Lent here, is a theatre of human time spread out in space. And that's fascinating. What happened to that actual painting, Mary? Oh, Jean, do you want to tell us about it? Who owned it and who owns it now? Well, it's now in Vienna, and we know that um, it came to the collection of uh, Rudolf II, uh, who was one of the later um, emperors. We don't actually know exactly how it got there. So a lot of Bruegel's paintings were being collected um, in the years after his death. A lot of them were um, collected by the younger brother of Rudolf II, um, and who they then passed to his brother. We're really not sure exactly about this one, and we don't know who owned it originally. But the Habsburgs started collecting. They understood that something really interesting is happening in their Netherlandish domains and they became quite interested in that art, so they're important. But for Bruegel, one simply has to go to Vienna. Mm -hmm. Right, well, that's a direct... When <laughs> <laughs> we just get one of these cheap travel tickets and off we go, mate. Just... <laughs> OK, well, thank you very much, uh, Mia Rubin, Jean, Jean Nocteline and Louise Milne. And next week uh, we'll be talking about phenomenology, which came in at the beginning of the 20th century and hasn't gone away. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. My 
in my lifetime just to see the shit, different attitudes because now he's taken very seriously oh, yes, and you can see how much he read I and how much he knew. It's a surrealist, yeah. really. 1930s. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dalian. Breton discovers him. Mm-hmm. But his painting of London is the most bought Christmas card The best-selling ever. Christmas card yeah. in the world, really? yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would love that, actually. As a printmaker, he would, he would, he would be very happy with that. I think the printmaking is absolutely crucial, just as you said. It's hard. You know, they, they are basically making a living from these sort of mass-produced... It's the information yeah. age, yeah, you know? Yeah. The, the, due to Cock and, and the Shop of the Four Winds, the pictures of Michelangelo, of Titian and so on, known. go all over the world. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyone can buy these prints and look at them but and the prints, then copy them. We neglect the fact that print seems to... The printmaking in the Netherlands seems to drive various strands of civilization because not only are painting is shown everywhere, but the ideas of the Reformation yes. and, uh, are driven through Absolutely, print yes. uh, rather than through preaching. The point about Tyndall was very interesting because although it's supposed to be the Catholic Netherlands, it's the place where all, all the, yeah. uh, the exiles go. Yeah. I mean, the city of Emden. So but it's also that it's an imperial city and city air makes free, as the proverb goes. So these free cities were not directly under the control of even of the governor of the Netherlands. They really did have a lot of liberty. Yeah, but Philip II really Philip came down II hard. Philip II then tracks and, it down. Yeah, and just before he dies, of course, just before he dies, the year before he dies, uh, Bruegel dies, we have the uh, revolt of the Netherlands, which the is Netherlands, not a joke. Yeah, the great riots, yeah. Yeah. serious yeah. riots. Yeah. But can, I, can I just say something about why I think Bruegel was so long-lasting? You know how with um, political satirists, they take um, a person, they take a feature that's distinctive, so a long nose or a chin, and they really exaggerate it. It seems to me that what Bruegel often does is that he does that, but to a really small extent. So he, he kind of captures extent. the essence. And so when people look at his work, they can either see it as really naturalistic, or they can see it as slightly exaggerated and caricature. And I think that then leads to people being able to read them in so many different mm-hmm. ways and respond to them in so many different he's ways. He's really in command, though, of the virtual space of the Renaissance. Mm. You know, he's like a, a cinematographer or a director of uh, yeah, the cast of thousands. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he can take all these technical tools which have been bashed out by the end of the 15th century. Perspective, mm-hmm. he can do anything he wants with perspective. Mm-hmm. And so he can really just expand the, the the fame of the world to contain all this stuff. I think, though, that you really need to look at this in, along with his other carnivalesque work, which are much, much more Boschian. And these are print designs, but also the Dulgriette, which is yeah. a sort of mad, crazy, hallucinatory picture. And then you'll see how that this is an argument for the for innocence, I think. For the for for mm, old fashioned yeah. you know popular culture. Yeah. 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 If he'd wanted to make Carnival look <clears throat> demonic and hellish, then he could have done that. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio four.